This is a very uh, special evening, the New Year's Eve. The perceptions of had been special. Uh, the end of one year, beginning uh, in a few hours of the New Year, 1997. And so the, when we, we can use this event as a way of uh, contemplating it, what it really is, what it means, its significance, and how to uh, develop mindfulness, wisdom uh, in our lives over the following year, 1997. Um, we can see the past year, 1996, seemed to go by very quickly. Uh, I'm sure it wasn't just me, or maybe it was. But, uh, of course, as you get older, the years go by more quickly than they do when you're young. But anyway, what we're moving towards is that is a recognition of the timeless rather than being caught up with the uh, perceptions of time as being the real world that we hold to and try to control in some way or endlessly make plans or worry or feel anxious or dread or fear, anticipate the future or spend our lives regretting the mistakes of the past or resenting uh, things that have happened to us uh, in, the, in the past. So they, they, when in the Pali word for an unenlightened, unawakened human being uh, is the word the Bhutuchana. So Bhutuchana is, is like an ordinary human being that, that has not awakened to anything, more or less programmed, conditioned to think and act and operate according to uh, the uh, cultural conditioning, social conditioning that he or she receives and that without question, without investigation, without awakening the mind. And so we can, we can just operate like on a program that we get, we get when we're young and then we kind of carry it on through, going through the same motions repeating the same things over and over again until we die. Or we can awaken. And so the um, Buddha means the awakened one, that which is awake. Just because your eyes are open and you, you're not asleep doesn't mean you're really awake. If you're just caught in, the, in a program of, you know, of self-centeredness, of stupidity, of greed, of hatred, and and uh, endless delusions about yourself and the world you live in, then you're not awake. You're merely a kind of uh, a, um, a cipher in a system. You're not, you're not one who has awakened to the truth of, or to the Dhamma. So this word Buddha is a very significant word uh, in, in the tradition, in the, it, it always implies the awakened state of mind. A Buddha can be a human being. So we can have Buddha images like the one that you see is, is a human form, idealized human form, but it, it represents the, the uh, ability that we all share, that uh, we can awaken. And awaken to the truth.
So in this uh, this evening, when we when the uh, this is the New Year's Eve, then the intention say is to live in the awakened state, to more and more make a strong determination to to develop mindfulness awareness and and use various skillful means to to keep yourself to keep reminding yourself to pay attention to be in that state of of attentiveness to what you're feeling to the experiences that you that you're having in regard in regards to uh, the your karma what happens to you good or bad desirable or undesirable or whatever because the awakened state of mind isn't one where we're, we're trying to control and, and influence life for our own benefit or for our own convenience. It means we're, we're willing to learn from what happens, from both the successes, the failures, the, the good, the bad, the, the, the good health, the, the bad health, the uh, praise that we get, the blame that we get. And we're not we're not making we're not asking for favors uh, and special privileges from above, because we're now realizing the real refuge, and the real gift of our humanity lies in our ability to awaken to life and to learn, to understand. And so the Buddha uh, established his uh, his teaching around the common uh, experience of suffering. And so this is the most common human experience that we all share. As the first noble truth, so he, he made the most common, ordinary human condition that that every human being experiences in their life into a noble truth, the first noble truth. Why? What what is the what is the value of that? <coughs> And so the, this dukkha is to be understood. In other words, we're not just trying to get rid of it and run away, uh, avoid, uh, get rid of, deny uh, suffering, but to understand it. To understand anything, what do you do? You have to accept it for what it is first. If you're just reacting to it and, and resenting and resisting the or trying to distract yourself, then you're, you, you, how can you ever understand anything if you're just caught in your reactions to it? So we change our attitude towards our own suffering. Instead of just seeing it as uh, something we want to get rid of or blame on somebody else or, or just feel uh, despair and uh, resentment, we we take an interest in, in our own experience of suffering. And so there's a natural suffering that we, we all share uh, of uh, a, getting old, of sickness and pain and, and of death. We all have to experience the loss of loved ones in, in our lifetime. We have to, our loved ones uh, separate, move away, die. Uh, we all have to experience having to put up and bear with things that we don't like and don't want. And we all want things that we don't have. And so these, these, uh, this suffering, say these, these, this kind of suffering is common to all humanity. And it's natural, the unsatisfactoriness of the body, for instance, this aging process is, is just the way it is. It's, it's, uh, it, it's born, grows up, gets old and dies. That's its nature. But whether we create suffering around the aging process or the pain or the sickness of it or the fear of death or we create endless uh, anxiety, worry about the lo losing what we have or what we like or resent or or, or about the things that have happened to us, the way we create resentments and, and hold on to grudges and want to seek revenge, want to get even, how we blame, how we grumble, complain, 
feel jealous, uh, create uh, endless complications around the experiences that we're having in life. This is the kind of suffering we can, we can let go of. And one one um, Thai monk calls this the what he calls akandukatuk, which is uh, the kind of uh, uh, akanduka means like uh, visiting, kind of a visiting kind of suffering or a, a something that comes to us that we that we create onto onto the experience of the aging, the the sickness, the pain the natural unsatisfactoriness that we have in this realm, this sense realm that we're experiencing. So we contemplate in in the Buddhist uh, uh, vipassana meditation, looking into the nature of things, we contemplate existence, what it really means, like being conscious, having a physical body, having senses, uh, having to look at things, hear sounds, smell odors, taste uh, with our tongue, the, the, the um, good and bad flavors, uh, having to feel heat uh, and cold pleasure and pain through the body, having a mind that retains a retentive memory. We have to remember things. We have language and uh, ability to create and to imagine, to reason. And therefore, there, mentally, we, we can become very complicated as we get entangled in our own thought process or our own emotional habits and get bound up in the most complicated neurotic patterns uh, that uh, lead us inevitably to some state of despair, depression. So in the practice of meditation, then we're we are now beginning to stop just being caught into the, into the habits by listening and awakening to them, understanding them. Understanding the, the word understanding, like standing under or accepting the, the, the state of mind we're in, the body as it is now, the whatever... Uh, what, whatever its uh, quality in this present moment is, or the the mood or the state of mind you happen to to be in at this moment, to understand it means to accept it for what it is. Accepting, understanding doesn't mean approving, but it means it because we can accept and understand a lot of things that we don't approve of, or uh, that are bad or painful or miserable or terrible. But it's only through accepting them for what they are and understanding that, that we begin to see the way of non-suffering. So the Buddha taught suffering and the end of suffering. As the, and the Eightfold Path is the end of suffering. And the Eightfold Path is the fourth noble truth. The Buddha taught only two things, suffering and the end of suffering. So the end of suffering can be realized. And that means to be free from the delusions, the identities with the mortal state that we are strongly attached to. Such as your own body, isn't it? If you're if you are your body, then you're attached to a dying animal. And you, you, you are a, you know, you are a dying thing because we're all dying. You know, we're all moving toward the grave toward the crematorium. Tonight we'll go out and throw papers on a bonfire. Remember that in a few years we'll all be in that fire. <laughs> These bodies.
Now, if you're attached to all your mental conditioning, what's, what is it? What, what have you got to show for that? You want to attach the idea of being uh, English, maybe, being French, being upper class, working class, or attached to the idea of being a man or a woman, attached to the idea of being a Tory or a, or a Labour or a Liberal, attached to the idea of being a Buddhist or not being a Buddhist or being a Christian or attached to uh, the idea of your being a personality, uh, a certain kind of person, to our memories, to our habits, our emotional habits. We, we, we attach, we identify, and therefore we're always in this state of, of, of feeling unstable and unsure and doubting and uncertain and despairing because we are identified with things that are basically unstable, transient, impermanent, and not, not real. Because you, you get you, the conditioning of your mind is one thing. Isn't it? What we get, how do we choose it? Don't, don't we, we get born into uh, through our parents? And the, whatever they are, we, we acquire a lot of their attitudes, assumptions, and the particular culture and social conditioning that we happen to get whenever, wherever we're born, what we, what we get as our uh, result of that birth. We're conditioned and we form a sense of ourself, our personality, our worth, worthlessness, value or lack of it or whatever accordingly. But all that conditioning is something that comes out of not understanding Dhamma, not seeing things, in, in, not being awake and really understanding things as they really are. We, we, we get, sometimes we get quite good conditions. We get born to a good family with loving parents and social advantages and, and uh, very fairly wise and generous uh, situation and that we might inherit, you know, quite a, a good load of karmic uh, conditioning, or we might be born into kind of miserable conditions right from the beginning. But uh, whatever, no matter how good or how bad the karma, the, the conditions might be, the act of identifying, of, of being blindly attached and, and, and caught and stuck into that conditioning process means that uh, we're, we're attached to the changing, unstable, ephemeral mental states that fleet through, the, through consciousness. Uh, and of course then it, they're always trying to find some sense of stability and constancy in life through maybe having lots of money or uh, having you know, property, having things that uh, and having a kind of stable situations that give us, uh, that make us feel everything's going to be okay. But in the long run, even if you're able to, to uh, manipulate the world and, or you have the, uh, the opportunity to pretty much get what you want and, and, and have all the best, there's something still frightening unknown, mysterious, some sense of doom and, and uh, uh, pursue us, haunt us in our lives as human beings until we awaken. So the way out of, the, uh, of this suffering is not through avoidance or through having particularly good karma to get born into the into the into a better situation the next life, but by awakening awakening to the way things are. And so, all of us have this opportunity, uh, uh, having uh, the opportunity to hear the Dhamma teaching. To, to now here in in England, there are places like this, places where you can come and practice. You get some kind of guidance, encouragement for 
developing this, this way of practice in order to realize the way of non-suffering. The way of non-suffering doesn't mean you don't get old or don't uh, get sick <laughs> or your body doesn't die or you don't feel any grief when your mother dies or anything. But it means that you, you're able to understand suffering and, res and, and respond and not be caught in a kind of helpless victim of your Im immature emotional habits or unresolved uh, problems in your life. It's through the uh, through this understanding that we can resolve our karma. We can we can liberate ourselves from the uh, uh, and not create suffering around what happens to us. Now this is very important to to recognize that that uh, that, that I found this with, with, with in my early monastic life in Thailand because I, I, I entered the monastic order thinking that you know you're going to find some state where the whole kind of miserable stuff vanishes and you're you know there, there was a, some kind of uh, and a lot of doubts would arise because I couldn't imagine you know how, how that could possibly be and then through through the uh, guidance teaching of uh, somebody like uh, Lung Po Cha or his teachers that one meets yeah. then you begin and, and through developing uh, and using the teachings of the Lord Buddha then you actually begin to realize this for yourself the way it is in terms of being a human being in a, in a conscious form in a human body on this planet is like this So, like, like the feeling of oh, when we go outside, feel this sharp, bitter cold, and so we can we can suffer from that cold or not suffer. I mean, there's the actual feeling, and, and whether you know that your body uh, is receiving from, say, the cold, the sharp, bitter cold that that we're having, the cold spell that we're having at this time. And that's sensation, and that's maybe unpleasant. Maybe it's an unpleasant. You have, it makes you, you know, you want to get away. You want to get out of it. It's not a pleasant experience to be in the cold like that. So the natural, natural movement is to get away from it. But also we begin to recognize that, that if we grumble, complain, hate the cold, not want to be here, uh, then we're creating suffering. We're adding to the experience of coldness and the discomfort that that brings us with mental discomfort. And so, we, and, and with the ability to contemplate, we begin to get a sense for watching this tendency to, say, complain about the weather. Uh, to not want to, not want not to, not want it to be cold, wanting it to be warm. Not wanting to feel cold, but wanting to feel warm. Wanting something you don't have, or not wanting things to be the way they are, is the suffering we create around the, the way it is in the present. We, we live in a society that, that does complain a lot. The more affluent, I think, societies become, the more they complain. And so we, we spend our time complaining about the government, about the, uh, the way it is, about the wife or the husband, the children, the parents, the society. There's always, uh, you know, the politics, the economy, the European Union, 
the Americans, Japanese, <laughs> and all the different things that we can we can uh, end up complaining about. We, but and this is a suffering we create when we when we have a complaining mind. Then we live in a realm of we we creating all this negative stuff in our through consciousness. So we can contemplate this, uh, the, and we can actually uh, reflect on this te emotional tendency to complain, to criticize, to find fault, to to want things to be otherwise. Or if they're the way they are, if you're really happy and like the way it is now, how we, we, we dread losing or, ha let, or having seen it change into something else. So even, when, even the, the kind of peak moments of our uh, sensory uh, experience where everything is just wonderful, we can also be caught in the, in the dread of losing it. So we create dread about the possibility of losing the, the success, the happiness, the, the wealth, the, the good relationship, the comfort, the security that we have. So that even though we have it, we create suffering around the, the, the inevitable uh, possibilities of, of losing what we like, what we depend on. And then if, if we don't have it all, then we we'll complain and, and uh, about the fact that it shouldn't be like this. So the mind is caught in the in these very in this negative mode, which is uh, which is the suffering we create. So the the stance of a meditator is one of the Buddha or the awakened mind, where we we pay attention. Mindfulness, the uh, the Buddha emphasized mindfulness. Uh, and this is the the kind of this is the the kind of focus of the that the Buddha used and and really mindfulness is a is a word that uh, I'd never really used before I became a, a Buddhist. It wasn't a kind of common word or concept in the in my kind of cultural or social programming. In fact, when, when I first heard I didn't quite know what it meant. In fact, when I first started meditation, I thought it meant some kind of concentration because I learned to do this kind of uh, Burmese style uh, at first where you do, where mindfulness meant you did everything very slowly. So, so I started doing the, this Mahasi Sayadaw method and, and you're all supposed to do everything in a very slow, slow movement. And uh, so I thought mindfulness meant you did everything slowly. Then, I, then further investigation, I began to realize it had to, it had to be more than that because you can't live, I, mean, I couldn't imagine living my life just walking that slowly or doing everything in such a contrived way. Uh, and surely, uh, you know, the Buddha didn't mean that we should kind of slow down to uh, to where uh, you know we the uh, we can't even uh, catch a bus unless we leave two hours ahead of time to be able to make it to the to the bus stop remember in a monastery that I first started meditating in, in Thailand uh, one monk was there he'd been there about 10 or 11 months before I arrived and he'd been doing this slow method and uh, and I watched him eat one day and it was, it was, he developed it into a real skill and it's, uh, take the food and everything was just so beautifully done these very slow movements and uh, and he'd been doing that for 11 months and then uh, a few weeks later, an ambulance came and took him to the hospital. <laughs> because uh, his system had broken down. He, couldn't <laughs> he hadn't exercised his body 
for 11 months. And they uh, constipated and uh, everything. <laughs> so I thought, they, <laughs> I don't think that's, that, that could be just, I think mindfulness has to be much, um, much more useful than doing everything in a slow way. But one can be mindful doing things in a slow way. Slowness is, is, is one way, is, you know, is a, is a technique, you know, something to slow down and it helps to concentrate. To slow down gives you uh, a more of a concentrate, sense of concentration. Um, but mindfulness include, is, is all-inclusive. It includes fast and slowness, it, it, every every aspect of human existence and sensory experience we can be mindful of and no matter how pleasant, unpleasant, fast or slow, good or bad it might be. Because mindfulness is, means to pay attention, to put yourself into that state of attentive listening, awareness, where your, your mind is open and embracing where it, it's, it's, it's including everything. It's not, not just uh, fixed on one thing uh, by, sh uh, by excluding everything else. The mindfulness is like intuition or intuitive awareness, words like this, Im convey the sense of paying attention, being in that state of awakened listening. Like when you're really listening, you're, you're in the state of, of where your mind is kind of wide open and you're just alert, attentive, poised in that state of awareness. Before you even, and you begin to recognize this as a, uh, you know, before you even start thinking about anything, you can you can, uh, that state of poised attention, awareness, mindfulness, is, uh, is, is, the, uh, is the kind of what we mean by mindfulness. State of being able to uh, include and to be able to be aware of what's actually happening right now, both externally and internally. We have the four foundations of mindfulness where you actually begin to contemplate the body as it is now, your own body, not as some kind of abstract thing that you, that you study in a, in, a, in a book of anatomy and physiology, but just the experience of the body as it is right now, and it's, as it's breathing or sitting, standing, walking or lying down. So mindfulness is the ability to, to observe, to pay attention, to embrace the physical experience of your own body in this present moment. Or the, the, the sensitivity that we have through the, through the senses, the pleasure, pain and neutral sensations that we get through uh, sensory activity. We can be, there's a that part of us which is aware of pleasure, pain, or neutral sensation. Or the mood, the state of mind you're in. You can be aware of the kind of, what kind of mental quality your mind's in right now, whether you feel happy, sad, high, low, peaceful, confused, excited, angry, frightened, threatened, worried, or whatever, there's a, that mindfulness ability to, uh, to recognize this, the mood as it is. It's not judgmental, not, not saying you should have a certain kind of mood or a certain kind of sensation, but it's the ability to understand, to embrace that which is right now whatever quality it, uh, the condition might be. 
And through that ability, then of course you you begin to see things in a different way. You're looking at the impermanence of these conditions rather than whether they they should or shouldn't be, or good or bad, right or wrong. It's not a critical. It's not like choosing one thing or another, uh, and and and. Uh, deciding what is the best, but it's recognition of the way it is now, which we begin to to see it through this mindfulness and wisdom rather than through liking, disliking, picking and choosing, selecting, discriminating, which is what we usually do, isn't it? We're usually caught in reactions to the mood we're in. There is you're in a bad mood, or you tend to either indulge in it and, and follow, or you, or you resist it, you're trying to get rid of it. Or if you see or hear something that, uh, that is beautiful and you feel attracted, you kind of gravitate towards it, or if, you, uh, if it's ugly or, or, or unpleasant, then you want to get rid of it, run away from it. But mindfulness and with wisdom, combined with wisdom, allows us to embrace the, the, the experience of the present, whatever it might be. And in that attitude of embracing the suffering, then we, we begin to understand dukkha, the causes of it, and realize the way of, of uh, uh, realize the ending of dukkha, the ending of suffering. So this particular practice is it's interesting to see how, how in the past uh, 40 years or so the amount of interest in Buddhist meditation in the Western world. I remember uh, I became interested in Buddhism in, uh, around 1955. And um, then it was, uh, hard, you know, it was a, a really exotic, foreign kind of th- thing. Then there was a, in the West Coast in California, the, the, it was becoming kind of a fashionable kind of, uh, it was a fad, the kind of beaten Zen in that, that uh, time where, where the American occupation of Japan uh, brought over some, we, we got some, well, some of the good things we received from that time was uh, an interest in Zen Buddhism. And uh, it was, it was, it was first it started more like an intellectual kind of gimmicky, fashionable thing to do. But it also brought into consciousness the, the, the Buddhist attitude, which was something that, that was, you know, one sense there was something in it that we didn't have in our own cultural uh, conventions. And uh, what we, la- what I felt, what I, I kind of intuitively sensed then was this embracing quality was lacking because I was brought up in the very, in the very strongly discriminative, uh, discriminative uh, tradition where you're constantly resisting evil and trying to control things. If you're in a bad mood, you're getting rid of it. You're anger, you've got to get, you've got to get rid of it. Uh, you've got to try to, um, you, you've, got, you've got the idea, you've got to change yourself into something uh, by becoming better and better and trying to get rid of all your bad habits. And so the, um, this was just kind of uh, a feeling of of despair with life, because no matter how hard you tried to control and make and make yourself into what you thought you should be, it, it didn't quite work. And uh, and you're always trying to 
resist and deny part of yourself, part of your experience, and trying to, to try to get something and hold on to something else. <clears throat> Where with the Zen Buddhist approach is much more the, the, the attitude of, of, of oneness, of embracing, of, of contemplation, of may, not choosing, picking or choosing, of non-resistance. Taking that further into when I becoming a monk uh, in Thailand, example, in really making a strong commitment to uh, a a tradition and a, and a monastic form uh, as a as a guide and reference for for mindfulness so that you have a lot of supportive conventions around you to uh, refer to and and kind of bounce off of because uh, being uh, being such a, a kind of uh, free spirit before I became a monk and being quite li- living quite a hedonistic life a life well, an indulgent life uh, there was little. There was little ability to, to operate within conventions. There was more or less just following impulses. So, becoming going into a very conservative um, monastic tradition was to me a, an opportunity to, to have some perspective on this kind of wild, hedonistic and impulsive, uh, uh, these impulsive habits that I developed. But it wasn't done as a kind of ascetic uh, determination to to make myself into something else. But it was uh, a, a it's a it was a convention to it is a convention to use for reflection. Now you notice in the retreatants when you come on a retreat here, uh, also you. You have to, you have to. You're living by the eight precepts, so you're, you're living more in a in a in a controlled and and confined way than you generally uh, would if you if you just lived your ordinary life. The the boundary there's much more the the, the scope for doing what you want, saying what you want, uh, uh, following your impulses is diminished in a, in a meditation retreat. Because you, you, we all agree to live within the boundaries and restrictions, margins of, of the uh, eight precepts. And that also, see, has, is a way of, of um, when you, at first one can feel a kind of relief in a group because everybody is committed to the same standard, the same, uh, the same, Restraint the same limitation, but if you carry on, say, uh, for the next year within the eight precepts, you'll find a lot of resistance to it, <laughs> a lot of rebellion, a lot of frustration, a lot of of uh, irritation with the with limitation, and that, so those are the, those are the things that one would begin to notice, just the the frustration the irritation, the resistance, the rebellion to restraint, to, to external conformity. Because I, I grew up in the, in the kind of idea of, a, of being a, uh, a non-conformist. I prided myself on being a non-conformist, an individual, a free spirit. Uh, West Coast Americans, back in the 50s, you got a beatnik, bohemian, Hippie, that kind of really like those those identities, and be kind of proper uh, Buddhist monk, forest tradition, Northeast Thailand, strict rules and all that. It was a, it brought such a strong. It would it helped to reflect this this uh, this uh, impulsivity. So then, by reflecting, by contemplating, you you begin to see the suffering you create, and then the aim to to relinquish, 
the causes of suffering, to let go of the causes of suffering and realize the cessation of suffering means that you find contentment. You begin to realize an inner stillness and peacefulness and contentment that isn't dependent upon conditions being any certain way. But you really have the insight into those noble truths and you, you have that realization and a stillness, a kind of inner purity and stillness that's natural to us. We begin to let go, free ourselves from those identities, more and more you you begin you remember you realize and in that you be, you when you have that insight then you feel then you begin to to have a confidence in yourself. You begin to see clearly how to practice, how to live in a way that you're no longer creating the causes for suffering in your life. And your refuge is in the is always in the present, in that natural purity and stillness, serenity of the heart that that uh, we keep forgetting as we as we get caught up into the old habits again. So we need things that remind us again because we forget we can always remember. And we use this ability to recollect, to remember until we, we find that kind of balance again, that state is a natural state, it's a balanced state, it's sustainable through mindfulness and, and with wisdom, that pure, natural purity and stillness is, is, isn't something you create that's depending upon conditions of being very fine and very quiet and very still or outside. That inner stillness and purity is, is indestructible no matter what's happening around in the middle of a battlefield or a committee meeting or or a traffic jam, or on a mountain top in a cave, whatever isn't isn't really uh, the uh, you're no longer dependent on ideal situations or controlling uh, the the environment for your inner peace because that inner peace is indestructible. And so we call it the the deathless. We 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 realize the deathless. So this uh, new year, I I want to encourage you to uh, keep going. Uh, it's uh, definitely something worth uh, pursuing. If you have any doubts about meditation, uh, it's uh, something that that will that will uh, be of great value to you. And at first, it can be very frustrating, and and uh, um, because we're we're not used to. To uh, we're, we're having to change and having to to limit and and uh, do things that aren't you know that tend to we tend tend to be rather boring at first or or we get despairing or frustrated because we can't make our mind do what we want it to do. And the mind used to to distraction and wandering and then we 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 don't want it to do that. We'd like to get our mind into a nice still place and 
can make it stay there, and then it won't do that. So we're always feeling frustrated, or or we feel uh, we're we blame ourselves. We feel we're not, we can't meditate, or we we feel we're not uh, capable of this high achievement uh, that that other people are obviously capable of doing. Or we get caught in our own sense of frustration, self-disparagement, doubt, and despair. But all those are part of it. We keep, we keep embracing those various forms of suffering and understanding them until eventually they, 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 through understanding our suffering, we can let it go, we can let go of the causes. But it does take a, a strong determination and patience humility, willing to start again uh, and willing to, to keep applying your, this, this, uh, this mindfulness to, not just to uh, a, a retreat at Amravati, but uh, taking what you learn, insights you have, and trying to apply them to daily life, to family life, to where you work, to this... Uh, so that the meditation is uh, something that you begin to integrate into the flow of your life rather than just see meditation as some special kind of thing you do at a special place. So I offer this as a contemplation, reflection for you for New Year's Eve and uh, all my best wishes for your uh, enlightenment. 1997.